Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek, and this is the pre-first episode where I describe the podcast's origins, its purposes, and how it works. At the top level, my goal is to meet a need that I just don't see met. I find that many people want to impact the environment less, but can't see how. And I don't just mean global warming. Even if you don't believe in global warming, you don't want mercury in your food. So I also mean pollution, extinctions, litter, deforestation, resource depletion, and things like that. Many people feel like they don't understand the science, that if entire industries or billions of other people don't also change, then what difference does it make what they do? Or they feel guilty or things like that. I think that they want to feel a part of something greater than themselves that will work. They want community, support, vision, expectation of success, things that I call leadership. And as much as we're looking for leadership in this area, almost no one is qualified and motivated. Scientists who do research They may know this stuff, but they generally don't influence very effectively. Nor do educators who just share facts, or politicians, business leaders, journalists, and so on. They all have interests that conflict with helping people like you enjoy leaving the world cleaner than they found it. And that's where this podcast comes in. In it, I interview established, influential people twice. In the first interview, we start by getting to know the person, and then I invite them to take on a personal challenge based on their values. So it's not something that I tell them. It's something that they choose to reduce their impact on the environment. Typical personal challenges are things like eating less meat for a month, using public transportation more, picking up litter, stuff like that. But they have to change themselves, not just tell others to change. We already have too many people telling others what to do while they don't do it themselves, which I think undermines their leadership. In the second interview, we review how it went. So for background, for people who don't know me, I have a PhD in physics. I have an MBA, I've started several companies, and I teach and coach leadership and entrepreneurship at Columbia and NYU. I wrote a best-selling book called Leadership Step-by-Step. You can hear me use the techniques from that book in this podcast. In other words, I love the beauty of nature and keeping it that way, restoring it, and developing social and emotional skills. As I'll describe later, I took on many personal challenges myself before asking others to, to reduce my impact on the environment. There were struggles at first, some of them very difficult, but they ended up becoming some of the best decisions I've ever made. So this podcast is about living by your values, the struggle to switch from living in conflict with them and the joy and emotional reward on the other side of that struggle. You'll get to hear my guests' struggles, their successes, their failures, their recoveries, their excuses. But most of all, when they say at the end, that challenge was more than I expected, but what I needed. Thank you for getting me to start. This podcast is for people who find the science compelling, want to change, and want to be part of a supportive, helpful community. So someone whose TED Talk had millions of views or who won a Pulitzer Prize or things like that, they're no less human than you are. They face the same challenges. So if you're looking to change your behavior and enjoy doing it, you probably don't need more tips or facts. We have tons of them. If we're not acting on them, it's not because they're not there. I'll explain in a few minutes why tips and facts often discourage action. You probably want to know things like that you're not alone, to feel part of a community, to hear what others are doing that works. Like wearing a seatbelt or brushing your teeth, once you make these things automatic, it's easier to keep doing than it is to go back to the old ways. So I also created a personal challenge page where you can see the challenges other listeners made and sign up for your own, which I strongly recommend. When you finish your challenge, having signed up will give you a public record that you contributed to the community. It will also give you reminders if you want, and post your social media and things like that so you can be a greater part of your community. Let me talk about the origins of this podcast. What do you think of when you think of taking personal action with regard to the environment? 
And I don't just mean global warming, but pollution, litter, extinctions, and things like that. Do you think, like a lot of people do, about deprivation and sacrifice, not getting to do things you like to do? Or do you think of guilt and blame or doom and gloom? How about delicious? How about community? How about adventure? These are the things that I think of, and I'll tell you how, and I'll tell you why. Because I've never known anyone who didn't like delicious. I'll tell you three stories, but it's really the same story three times. And maybe if things go well, then you'll end up telling me a fourth version, which may be you living a version of it yourself. So the first story, as I mentioned, I like the beauty of nature, but I realized I produce a fair amount of garbage. And I noticed that most of the garbage that I created came from food. And so I had this idea. I wonder if I could go for a week without eating food that came from packaging. Actually, when I had the idea, I had the idea to give myself a personal challenge. This is about two or three years ago. To say to myself, I'm going to buy no food where I have to throw away packaging for one week. So I thought that was an interesting idea. And after having the idea, it took me six months before I actually implemented it. For six months, in the back of my mind, I would think, I would plan it out and I'd analyze what, what would work and what wouldn't work. And I'd think to myself, if people ask me why I'm doing it, how to explain myself to them, because people really like to get into food stuff. And after a while, I realized all this planning, all this internal debate, all of this imagining what the conversations would be with others, it wasn't leading to me actually doing anything. So one day I just said, look, it happens right here, right now. From this moment on, for one week, I'm going to buy no food where I have to throw away packaging afterward. I allowed myself to finish what was in my cupboard, but otherwise I did it. It actually went two and a half weeks. And in the, those two and a half weeks, I didn't buy any food that, where I would have to throw away packaging. When I decided to do this, it became a big challenge. I would go to the store and I was like, what do I get? So I'd just look at the shelf and I'd say, okay, none of this stuff can I get because it's all packaged. What can I do? And I'd end up going over to the produce section. And I also, at this time, was doing a CSA, Community Supported Agriculture, where I'd get food dropped off from a farm a few blocks from me. And I would pick up fresh fruits and vegetables from there. And, you know, you bring my own bags and so forth. And also there's a bulk food store near me where I can bring my own bags so I wouldn't have to throw them away and fill them with dried beans and legumes and nuts and, and seeds and things like that. So I went two and a half weeks before I finally bought my first packaged food, which was a bunch of onions in a bag, which actually I realized I didn't have to get this bag. I could have gotten loose onions. And actually a little bit after that, some friends were over and I, I needed some tomatoes and I bought some canned tomatoes. And that's when it hit me. Why am I paying someone to melt aluminum just so I can get tomatoes that I didn't really even need and I prefer fresh anyway? And actually that was the last can that I bought. So it's been a couple of years. So in the couple of years since then, I throw away my garbage once or twice per year. But more importantly, after the struggle, okay, I will say this, that for the first several months of not getting packaged food, my diet was pretty bland. I had a lot of steamed vegetables with salt and pepper on them, or maybe I'd fry them in garlic and onions. It wasn't particularly great. But after about six months, I started realizing how to start mixing things together. And I never took any classes on cooking, but I taught myself by my tastes, what I really liked. And by now, my food is more delicious than it has ever been before. It took me a while. It took me a good year before I started getting good at it. But now when I go to get food with no packaging in New York City, in the wintertime, that means parsnips and rutabagas and turnips and things like that that I'd never heard of before. And I never knew how to do this stuff before. But it's become amazing, really good. So this food is more delicious than ever. And on top of that, it's more convenient than ever. Once you know how to cook, it becomes really easy to cook lots of meals at once. And most meals, I just reheat something from before. It takes me a few minutes to get it ready. I'm spending way less money on food than I did before. 
people talk about healthy food being expensive. Healthy food isn't expensive. Not knowing how to cook is expensive. Once you know, when I get stuff in season, the farmers, they're all selling it. It's like the cheapest stuff that's the most delicious and most flavorful. Anyway, so I'm going on about food. My point is that I went from going through a struggle to on the other side, food for me is now more delicious than ever, more convenient, saving money. And it's a lot more community because people come over a lot more than they used to. So in the middle of this challenge, a different challenge hit me. I was on a flight coming back from somewhere and I was watching a guy giving a talk on the environment. And I found out that a flight from New York to LA and back, roughly speaking, and it depends on people's habits, but roughly speaking is about a year worth of pollution in terms of its global warming impact. Because I live in New York City, I don't have a car, and I think of myself as not contributing that much emissions, global, you know, greenhouse emissions, because I don't have a car. But now I realize that I'm contributing a lot more than I thought I was. And I did what I think most people do when some new information comes in that challenges their identity, the way that they think of themselves. Because I, I wanted to keep traveling, but I didn't want to keep polluting. And so I think I did what most people did was I denied and suppressed that information. I just stuck it way in the back of my mind and didn't really think about it. Well, that works for a while until the next time I took a trip. And on that trip, I just couldn't stop realizing that my behavior and my beliefs were in conflict with each other. And I didn't like that. But I also had this past experience with the food that when I took on the struggle of living by my values, yes, there was a struggle, but on the other side, my life got much better. And so I said to myself, based on that past experience, when I got home, I decided that I would go for at least one year without taking a flight. Now, a lot of people, when I say this, by the way, that was a little over a year and a half ago. I'm in month 19 of not flying. And when I say this to a lot of people, their response is, oh yeah, well, that's easy for you. But for me, you have to understand, I have family all over the place and I have to travel to see them and my job requires it and all this other special snowflake stuff. Yeah, I know. I have the same thing. My book was coming out in that year and that meant no book tour. I have family all over the place too. Yes, it's a challenge. I know the challenge that most of us face because I live in the same world most of us do. So what happened? Again, it was the same, the same sort of thing. For the first several months, it was really hard because people invite me to things. I got invited to give talks and things like that that I would have to figure out how to get to by train or not go to or do online or other things. It was a struggle. But the big thing was that I realized what I got out of travel, things like adventure, new cuisines, you know, trying uh, visiting new cultures and things like that. Ultimately, I started realizing those things weren't out there. They were in here. They were internal things that I could create. I didn't have to depend on flying to get these things. I mean, people have been living for a long time without airplanes and still having adventure and getting cuisines and cultures and things like that. If they could do it, I could do it. That stuff isn't necessary. And actually, I'm going to tell you one story. When I realized I wanted new cultures, we say we want to go to all these places in the world. We get to these places. A lot of times we're seeing stuff that's set up for us or people, we're meeting people who spend as much time on the internet as we do. Meanwhile, we put our grandparents in old age homes and we don't spend time with them. So, you know, one of the people in my life, the, my mentor, Marshall Goldsmith, his mentor, Frances Hesselbein, winner of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, and she was the CEO of the Girl Scout. She's Peter Drucker, called her the best leader in America. And I interacted with her a bit, but now in my year of not traveling, she's a subway right away. I would go to meet with her sometimes, and my relationship with her grew a lot. Now, she grew up, she lived through the, the Depression, Prohibition, World War II, Vietnam, hippies and all these baby booms and all these different things that I put to you, someone who's lived like that is from as different a culture as anyone in Europe or, you know, any of the major places that people travel. 
So one time I went to her and I said, you know, I'm talking to a lot of people about changing their behavior with respect to the environment. And it seems to them like an affront. The, the idea of not going to Paris or Machu Picchu, they're like, no, there's no possible way you can get me to not do that. I want to go. Like my mom went to Rome. I would have to taste a cuisine. I said to her, what was it like for you during World War II? People had to go to Normandy and Iwo Jima and things like that. And without hesitation, she said, every man in my life served. Everyone, father, husband, brother, everyone. And she then told me about what it was like. She gave me a history of, of her experience during World War II. And I said, after that, I said, okay, that's what people did. But what about how people felt? What was the feeling behind it? Did they like it? Did they not like it? She said, it's just what we did. It's just what we did. And I contrast that world, that culture, with the culture today of not going to Machu Picchu is somehow just too much to ask of someone. In any case, what I learned was that over the course of that year, I was able to create more adventure for myself, more cuisines. You know, in New York City right now, you can go any place you want, almost any market, you can get a mango anytime you want. A turnip, on the other hand, which actually grows within 100 miles of this place, is much harder to come by. From a certain perspective, turnips are more exotic here than mangoes, and yet people want to travel for exotic stuff. Anyway, so I was able in that year to find more adventure, more new cuisines, more culture than I was before. So I'm starting to recognize, again, the feeling that choosing living by my values over comfort and convenience improved my life in ways I couldn't have predicted before. So when you ask me, what's the first thing that comes to mind with respect to changing your behavior with regard to the environment? The first word that comes to mind for me is delicious. Then convenience, saving money, spending more time with friends and community and things like that really much more improve my life. And that's what happens when you want to change. You see opportunity. So instead of arguing why your emissions don't count when you're doing something that it does with others, because a lot of people want other people to, to eat less meat or to fly less when they themselves don't want to change. But when you see that this improves your life, you want to do these things because you expect it will improve your life. You expect it will bring you more delicious, more convenience, save you more money, more community, more friends. And in those situations, you don't want small changes. You want big changes. If you know something's going to improve your life, you don't want a little improvement. You want a big improvement. So the third story happened in the middle of my, this year of not flying. Now 18 months and counting or 19 months and counting. And that's what, what happened was that my nation, the United States, elected a populist to become president who believed that global warming was a hoax, which I didn't agree with. And I realized that I was not willing to wait four years to see new leadership in the White House. And actually, that's what I realized. I realized we were missing leadership. A lot of people wanted to change, but didn't want to be the only ones changed. or didn't want to be the chump who, you know, everyone else isn't changed, but I am. And if, it's, if you view it as deprivation and sacrifice, you don't like that. But then I also realized that these changes, big social changes like this, rarely come from inside government. They generally come from outside. People like Nelson Mandela, Martin Luther King, Vaclav Havel. Gandhi, they didn't come from inside government. Yes, they did change that led to civil rights acts and things like that. And we, I want legislation to cap off social movements, but rarely does it come from inside government. And having recognized the pattern that if little changes improve a little, I want big changes. That means big things. But I came to see, I believe what, what, what we need now more than anything, we've got the science, we've got the education, we've got ideas for legislation and carbon taxes and things like that. I think what we need more than anything else is leadership in the style of Nelson Mandela, of Gandhi, of Vaclav Havel, of Martin Luther King. And I decided if no one else is going to do it, I will do it. 
I don't know how much I'll succeed, but I'll do my best. And to me, it sounds crazy to become the Martin Luther King of the environment. If you think you can do it better, please, by all means, take the lead. But until someone does it better, I'm going to do it. And that was my big challenge. This is my third one. And, you know, at first I thought, I guess I got to give talks. I got to give speeches like Martin Luther King. Now, being a professor and having past students, I put together a series of talks at NYU where I spoke on the leadership in the environment. And how do I put this? Euphemistically stating it, this was a very important learning experience because I realized that I wasn't prepared for that. And actually, then I realized Martin Luther King didn't give the I have a dream speech at the beginning. He wasn't the Nobel Prize winner at the beginning when he started. He started in Montgomery right out of school. And he wasn't, you know, he was just a grunt. He was trying to get people not to take the bus during the bus boycott. And so I took a step back from trying to give rousing talks and thought, instead of trying to influence many people at a time, maybe I should try to influence one person at a time. And so I'd work with people one-on-one, a lot of students. And one student, I told him how one of the habits that I picked up was I pick up one piece of trash per day when I'm walking around in New York and I put it in a trash can or recycling if, the, if I can. And this is not reducing the amount of trash out there. It's just concentrating it. But it's an experiential thing. And I recommend giving a shot wherever you live, if there's trash, pick up one piece of trash per day. Well, here, I'll tell you what happened with the student. I told him that I picked up one piece of trash per day. He took it on himself. He said that he was going to pick up 10 pieces of trash for the month of June. So at the end of June, I wrote him and said, how did it go? And his response was so inspiring to me. It actually became my July 4th post on Inc. So if you look it up, you can read it there. And I found that he showed tremendous personal growth. He took on extra challenges after doing the one piece of trash. He then took on more things that we, he and I never talked about because he saw that he was making a difference. And that difference made his life better. So if, if one thing improves your life, another thing will improve it more. That's what he found. You know, he said at the beginning, he felt weird picking up trash. At the end, he felt weird passing by trash. And how it's really not that much of an effort when you do it. It takes a second or two to pick it up and You know, I'm not so proud that I can't stoop down and pick up some trash. So that experience told me that there was something going on here. If you can get to people's, well, this is in my book. If you find out what people care about and you connect that to a task, then they'll do that task because they want to. And if it's something that they value, what does value mean? Value, evaluate. It's what's good, what's better. It means that you're making your life better. And I found that that's what happened with him. And so I thought I'm going to work one-on-one with people. And that led to me doing a podcast. So the idea of the podcast is this. I ask well-known people, influential people, to appear twice. In the first conversation, I first have them share about themselves to show off who they are because you know not everyone knows everyone. And then I invite them to take on a personal challenge of their choice to do something themselves. So it's not something I tell them what to do. And it's not some, they can't pick something where they tell other people what to do. We have enough people telling others what to do without changing themselves. This is for them to change themselves. And it can't be something that they're already doing. So I have to take on a new challenge. And in the second conversation, I ask them to share their experience. So the result is that if they succeed, they look good for achieving something, for doing something that they weren't doing before that people can learn from and follow. But they look better if they don't succeed, I think, because then they share their struggles and their vulnerability. We can see how they handle the challenges that they can't do. For example, a Marine who served in Afghanistan who is now running ultra marathons in all the countries of the world, who got the Dalai Lama to write the preface for his book. His challenge was to change his diet in a certain way for one week, and he wasn't able to do it. An entrepreneur who founded and sold a business with hundreds of people reporting to her, she had trouble remembering to bring bags to a store. It wasn't easy for them. And you you hear how they go through these challenges. So guests appear genuine, authentic, 
human. They're leaders. And again, there's a page for anyone, any listener, anyone who wants can go on and take on your personal challenge and lead others to follow, to take on these other challenges. And I think you'll see, you'll go through a struggle. Yes, it will be challenging to do something different than you have before. But I think on the other side, you'll find that when you do it based on your values, that you like what happens on the other side. The most common response that I get is words to the effect of, Josh, that was harder than I expected. Thank you for getting me to start because I put this off for way too long. I've been meaning to do it and I never have. And now that I did it, I want to do something else. My goal with this podcast is to make acting on your values with respect to the environment, climate change, pollution, litter, things like that, is to make it desirable, to make people realize that that they wish they had done this earlier because they'll realize that on the other side of that challenge is delicious, is convenient, is saving money, is adventure is personal growth, is community, something you wish that you had done earlier. And all of these things, all of this discovery of greater emotional reward, of living a better life, is all based around the concept of enough. You like to travel. We all like to travel. The thing is that there is no way that you can see all the different things in the world in a short lifetime. There's just too big of a planet. And eventually you realize, if I can't see everything, I better be content. I better learn how to appreciate what I have. And if, there's a, if you have to draw the line somewhere, draw the line where you are. Yes, you can see other things, but I put to you that you will enjoy the things more when you don't crave seeing everything all the time. And that goes for what goes for travel goes for everything else as well. When you're satisfied with what you have, everything else is you enjoy it more. What I saw missing and what I created this podcast to address is a key leverage point for any system. And that is its goals and its beliefs. Things like growth and more. And believing that change is something that we have to sacrifice for. What I want to say is that change can become delicious and living by your values. And the result is a goal of appreciating enough. That's what I want to do is to act on a system key leverage point, not just a part of a system, not just an element of a system, but a key leverage point. For example, a lot of people think that changing technology will fix the problem, that maybe if we just get enough solar power and we make machines more efficient, that that will solve the problem. But if you look to use systems terminology, The effect of just improving technology tends to create overshoot, which can create greater collapse afterward. If you fix every element, but keep the belief of growth, the belief that I don't want to change, then when you make the world comfortable for nine or 10 billion, even if that's already beyond sustainable, which is necessarily the case, if we depend on any non-renewable resources that we will be able to go past sustainable, then we will keep growing until the population collapses. I don't want to see that happen. And the thing is that when people say to you, here's one little tip that you can do, that implies to you, first of all, I'm not going to argue that little changes might not add up to big changes, but I tend to think that little things add up to little things. But the bigger issue is that when someone says, here's this little tip, that implies that you don't want to do it. If you wanted to do something, if you knew something was unconditionally beneficial, you wouldn't say just do it a little bit. You'd say do it a lot. So when you say just a little, you reinforce the systemic belief, the systemic goal that you don't want to do it. And that's counterproductive. You might get this little gain, but you can, you sustain the system that, that created the problem in the first place. So for example, no one ever says wear a seatbelt sometimes. There's no benefit to not wearing a seatbelt. When you wear a seatbelt, it saves lives or drinking and driving. No one would ever say to someone who drinks and drives all the time, try drinkless driving Monday. These changes seem like they're really big, but they're not without precedent. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples that have inspired me that this is possible. Now, the cases I'm going to suggest 
there are parallels, but I'm not saying there aren't differences. But smoking, when I was a kid, smoking was much closer to Humphrey Bogart than it is today. Today, smoking, I think a lot of people see it more like a diseased lung. And you don't have to know all the science of how cancer works and things like that, or how addiction works to know not smoking is healthier. And we do it because that's the world we live in. Smoking, in my where I am, smoking is looked down on, and that wasn't the case before. Another example is seatbelts. When I was a kid, if you told someone who didn't want to wear a seatbelt to wear a seatbelt, they'd get annoyed at you. They'd say, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't affect anybody else. Don't tell me what to do. Now, I don't know anyone who doesn't wear a seatbelt. And not only that, it's so automatic that no one even thinks about it. When you get in the car, you just reach up, grab the seatbelt and put it in. There've been technological changes. The laws were already there, but people have changed their behavior in a big way. And then drinking and driving is another big one. When I was a kid, the phrase, give me one for the road, people said that, meaning I'm about to drive, give me alcohol. This does not fly today. Yes, people drink and drive, but a lot less than before. But socially speaking, it is not acceptable. These changes happen within my lifetime on a wide scale. That tells me that this sort of thing is possible. My goal is to change beliefs. In my experience, that rarely happens. It's not effective to do that through science, through education, or through legislation, though I support them all. But if you want to pass a carbon tax, which by the way, I think should be called a pollution tax or an externality tax, because I like carbon. I don't want to tax it. I'm a carbon-based being. I don't like pollution. I don't like externalities. So I suggest changing the name, but that's an aside. So if you want to pass one of those taxes, voters have to act in accordance with it, which Americans don't. Politicians can tell if people talk about changing behavior, but they don't change your behavior, they're not going to vote along with that. They're going to vote with their behavior. And in the United States, when the price of gas drops, people buy SUVs. Politicians know that. Influential people influence. Getting people to listen means getting people they want to listen to. I don't know that many scientists that a lot of people want to listen to. There's not that many. I don't know that many professors that a lot of people want to listen to. But people do want to listen to TED Talkers, to number one bestselling authors, to actors, and to models and people like that. And that's who I get on this show. And for influential people to influence, they have to behave accordingly. So making a movie to tell people to pollute less while you yourself are flying around in a private jet, I don't think that works very well. But taking on a personal challenge does, especially when you share what worked for you, what didn't work for you, and then what you made work for you and the struggles that you went through. It's about integrity. It's about allowing your flaws to show and still sticking with it. In my experience, scientists, teachers, and politicians, they generally don't influence, except people who didn't really need the influence in the first place. They often promote resistance despite their best intent. So you who are listening, who haven't figured out how to enjoy acting on your environmental actions more, you are part of a larger community than you think. I think you're part of a huge global majority of everyone keeping quiet, waiting for others to go first. Well, I'm getting people to go first because I went first and it was tremendous. It made my life more delicious, more saving money, more convenient, all those things. You can lead yourself and others. So please, Think about your values and find a challenge consistent with it and do your challenge. Listen to the podcast and hear what other people are doing. Discover, enjoy your delicious. Hopefully you'll get more delicious, but it might be more convenient. It might be saving money, things like that. Reach enough. Find out what is enough for you so that you can enjoy what you have. And then what you have, what you get more than that, you like even more and share it with the world. Share your success, share your struggle, create community, be a leader. You can be the Thomas Jefferson the Nelson Mandela, the mother and the father of a nation. But instead of of a nation, it's of a global movement. The people who put their names down first 
you'll be people that people look up to for a long time because I'm not aware of anyone doing this, of making change desirable, fun, something that you wish you had done earlier. Listen to some episodes. Hear influential people behind the scenes. They struggle. They fail. They admit that they don't know. In real time, this is the parts that their books and their achievements make sound easy. And then sign a pledge for yourself to take on a personal challenge yourself based on your values, doing something that you've always wanted to do. Now, if you don't care about the environment, I'm not here to change you. I'm not here to argue. I'm here for people who've looked at the science, who find it compelling and want to change, but haven't figured out how. Billions of people are waiting for others to change first. You can be one of the first and you will find, I predict, that you like it. No matter how inconsequential you consider your actions, your leadership, your actions may hit a tipping point. More importantly, though, you'll find that it improves your life. That's what living by your values means. And also, you'll be leading the skills that you develop in resilience, in sharing, in being open, in asking for advice. They may get you promoted or closer relationship with your kids or more delicious or more adventure, things like that. So please listen and please take on a personal challenge. Discover what I did and what my guests have, that changing your behavior improves your life and that it beats craving. And that's what value means from evaluate, determining what's good and better. You'll make your life better by your standards. And afterward, this analogy I've been using a lot is my wet sock analogy. If you've ever walked outside in the morning and you step in a puddle or you get rained on and your socks are wet all day, it might happen that you stop noticing it. But when you get home at the end of the day and you take off your shoes and you take off your socks, it feels so much better to take off wet socks. And when you look back over the course of the day, you realize I wasn't really paying attention, but that was miserable the whole day. Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal. And when I was doing other stuff that distracted me, it didn't really bother me, but that was bothering me all day. And now that I took them off, I wish I'd taken them off earlier. And that's what happens when you live in conflict with your values. It's always bothering you. It's eating you up on the inside. It's making you miserable, even if you don't realize it. And you can crowd it out with other stuff, but it's still there. Whereas if you just take off your socks and change them, it makes your life much better. And you might even realize at that point, there's something else that's bothering you. And you can keep changing, you can change that and change the next thing and the next thing. And you get on this path of making your life better and better, which is why I have three stories, the food, the travel, taking on this leadership issue. So technology will only get us so far. Soul changing our diet, soul changing laws. I support these things. I consider them essential, but they alone, without changing the goals and the beliefs driving the system, they won't get us to solving the problems that if you listen this far, that you agree are there. If you want results, waiting for others or hoping the science was mistaken, that's past. That is no longer the case. This is about living a better life based on your values. I hope you listen to the podcast. I hope you enjoy hearing people's struggles and their triumphs. And I hope that you make them your struggles and your triumphs. So please sign up for a personal challenge, listen to a few episodes and enjoy.